Earl was singing so hard, he destroyed that music stand, boy. He killed it. Well, I'm John, one of the pastors here at the church, and again, we're so grateful to have um, all of y'all here. If you would, bow your heads and let's pray with me. Yeah. Father, we're grateful that we can reflect on all these, these great truths, that all these things that we sing about, it's so different and unique from everything else that we have here in this life. Everything else that we have here in this life we're fearful and we have to be scared that it'll run out or it won't last. But we never have to be scared of that when it comes to you, Father. We never have to be scared of that when it comes to your goodness, to your love, to your mercy, to your forgiveness, Father. There is no bottom and there is no end. And that's why we're so grateful to be here, Father. That's, that's what makes you undeniably so great. I pray that you would give us grace to believe that. As we have to wrestle with all the things in our life that seem to be so frustrating, even at the start of a new year, we've already come to grips with the fact that things are very much the same as they were. We're still very much in need of your help, but we're grateful that you provide that help to us free of charge. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Quick question for you. What's your guilty pleasure? Do you have one? You know, I, I think that we all have one. But if I were to ask you to turn to the person that's next to you and tell them your guilty pleasure, likely you probably wouldn't tell them. Right? A guilty pleasure is something that you and I enjoy doing, something that we think brings us a certain amount of satisfaction, and we'll do it. Just so long as nobody else knows, because then if they know, then we're hit with this, this thing called shame. I'll never for, forget two years ago, David Hamilton, the guy that's right back there in the back with the dread, see him. I want him to feel this shame. Um, he had exposed this. Uh, I took a sabbatical from the church that I was on staff with, um, and so I'm gone for a week, uh, and... <laughs> I go to my inbox the next week, and it turns out that at this time, I didn't know um, Spotify, like, let the whole world know every song that you listen to. <laughs> now, it is yet to be confirmed or denied if I actually did hear this song, but Spotify said that I was listening to songs by um, old boy bands, like... You know, in sync, those like, not the like black boy bands, but the white boy band. <laughs> so what David does is he takes this screenshot and sends it to the rest of the staff of the church and says, man, John, you've been gone for a week and they already took your black card. <laughs> and immediately what took place? Shame. <laughs> Hundreds of miles away from people and the only thing that I could think of was, I never want to see any of them as long as I live. I couldn't imagine looking at them in their eyes. Shame. You know it. We all know it, right? And we can start off. And the reason why we started off so light is that when you talk about shame, things can get real heavy really, really quick. And we all know what shame is. Shame is that thing that we all have 
but we don't want, but we can't really get rid of it. Here's the toughest thing about shame and why it's so hard to, to prevent. Shame comes from so many different places, right? Shame comes from things that you and I do, things that we've done wrong. But shame also comes from things that somebody else does to us, things that are wrong. So it's not just things that we do, but things that are done to us. Chandra and I, uh, we watched this uh, documentary last night, and it was of this girl who um, her mom, uh, who was white, had an affair with a black man but, uh, while she was married. So it's this black, or this, this girl that's mixed, and she grew up in a Jewish family. And they were so ashamed of what took place that they never told her. So she grew up her whole life mixed, and she thought that, that she was white until she was 16 years old. And what took place is she found herself in this big crisis. And she went and she talked to her mom and said, why did y'all do, why didn't you tell me all of who I was? Shame. It comes from so many different places that we can't guard against it. One thing that we can be sure is that shame's going to come and shame's going to find us. It doesn't just come from so many different places, but shame is so powerful, right? In any room, shame is the loudest voice in the room, right? We can be in a place where we get a thousand compliments and one word of shame. And do you know the, one, the thing that's going to stick with us? Shame. Shame is an amazing motivator, right? Uh, one thing that we've done in the course of these past uh, few months while we're trying to encourage people to get to church on time is we shame them. <laughs> and they come and it works. Shame's also a great manipulator. One of the things that we've done to get to ch folks to church on time is we shame them. We manipulate them into trying to get to church on time. Shame has a way of dictating the outcome of our life. Ruth Benedict writes of uh, what, what she calls a shame culture and a guilt culture. And in Japan, what she would say is a shame culture. What you find is there was this uh, ceremony called the harakiri. When a, a warrior is shamed, instead of dealing with the shame, what he does is he takes his sword and he drives it through his stomach and kills himself. My high school coach, one guy that taught me a whole lot about life and respect and all this stuff a few years ago, uh, uh, stuff came out, just these heinous accusations about him. And the next thing that we find out is that he sits in his car, his wife and his kid at home, and he kills himself. Shame is, it's... It's powerful. It comes from so many places. It's so powerful. And the thing that's most frustrating when you and I think of it is that shame's present. It's there. It's that house guest that is always present but never really welcome. You know what it is to deal with shame. You know how hard it is, how much it lingers, and it just stays. 
And the fact that it's present makes it so problematic because what shame does is it robs us of the very thing that you and I want most, and that's relationship with people. It's being fully known and fully loved. What shame does is it says you have to choose one. You can be fully known, but you won't be loved. Or you can be loved, but you have to hide things. Shame is there. It leaves us at a place where we feel hopeless. The reason why we didn't talk about shame last week and we chose this week is because on day three of the new year, we can really think that things have changed so much and that this year is really going to be so much different than the last year because of the ways that we've changed. But by day 10 of the new year, you've already failed on a lot of the things that you said that you were going to do. So shame comes in. It's there, just leaves us at a place where we feel hopeless. Shame runs deep. But there's something else that lies at the core of shame. And if we're ever going to get rid of shame, we can't spend our time just trying to deal with shame. We have to deal with what causes it. And so what I want to do is I want to spend the bulk of our time on one verse in the Bible that I think deals with what lies at the root behind shame. So if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We're in the last week of our Knowing God Means series, and that's just so many times we talk about what it means to know God, but here in the course of these past five weeks, we really wanted to talk about the benefits of Christianity, what knowing God means something. And this week, what we want to talk about is shame. Knowing God means you don't have to know shame. Knowing God means you don't have to know shame. Uh, So in this book, it's written by a guy by the name of Paul. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, Paul is a guy that's written or that he wrote half of the New Testament. So this guy that wrote half the New Testament, who was an amazing missionary of the gospel, a strong Christian, somebody that you and I would look up to, he was not exempt from shame. So as he's writing these words that God is going to use as the Bible to speak to Christians for thousands of years, what takes place is Paul writes about what God what God has done, what we've done, how we've messed things up. And I'm not really going to go into much depth. I just want you all to hear where Paul is at, uh, at the end of chapter up to 7. Paul says this, starting in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree that the law, uh, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I 
want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Has anybody in here ever felt like that? There's debate on if Paul wrote this before he was saved, after he was saved, and there was a long-standing debate. We'll put a blog up on the website, but I'll just talk briefly so as to not sidetrack. As folks that would read this uh, amongst a bunch of other things would say, well, it's clear that Paul didn't say it as a Christian, because he talks about right here, he doesn't have the ability to do good, but once Christ saves us, he gives us the ability to do good. And, and there are many solid and fine, smart men that believe that to be the truth. As I look at this, I think that the fact that Paul is saying there is a desire in me to actually please God and to do God, I think that testifies to the fact that God has done a work in his heart, And Romans 6 through 8, it's at this part where Paul talks not primarily about justification or how we're made right in the sight of God, but what it means to walk with him. So that and the fact that I read this and as a Christian, I can say, yes, that's me. It seems that it's best to say, all right, this is what Paul is saying as a Christian. And he gets to the point where he's overcome with this shame. And before we go on and talk about shame, we have to distinguish there is a difference in between guilt and shame. We live in a world where we use those words interchangeably. But what most sociologists would agree is this. Guilt primarily has to do with an act, right? Something that you did wrong. I can't believe that I did that. Guilt is primarily concerned with, all right, I did the wrong thing. Let me fix this. Sweetheart, I'm so sorry I didn't take out the trash again this week. I promise next week I'll take out the trash. Guilt is primarily concerned with fixing. Shame is not just, I can't believe that I did that. But what shame says is this, I can't believe that I'm the type of person that would do that. Oh, wretched man that I am. Right, what, what Paul says here. Shame is not concerned with an act, but it reflects and looks at the self and says, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. If guilt is concerned with fixing, shame is concerned with fleeing. I'm this type of person. I have to get out. I have to run. I have to hide. I have to make sure nobody can see the music that I listen to on Spotify. Shame is concerned with fleeing. So as Paul sits back and he reflects on himself and says, oh, wretched man that I am. He's not making a resolve to change things. His very next words at the end of verse 24 is this. He's not concerned with trying to fix things himself. He's primarily concerned with salvation. Who's going to fix me? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Shame leaves you in a place where you feel like you're hopeless to change. And regardless of all the resolve, you find yourself falling in the same patterns and you need help. You need somebody to save you. Oh, wretched man that I am, 
who will save me from this body of death. And so what he does is he examines not just shame, but what it is that lies behind shame. Look at his answer to this in Romans 8 verse 1. Paul says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is where the whole book turns. What you find here, what takes place here is in chapter 7 from verse 15 to 24, 32 times in 10 verses, Paul is going to use the word I, me, or my. And he's driven to despair. He's filled with shame as he looks at himself. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, he doesn't use a first-person pronoun once. And he's filled with hope as he takes his eyes off of himself and puts it on to Jesus. So as we think about this concept of shame, Paul is not primarily trying to deal with the shame, but he's trying to deal with the very thing that causes the shame. And the thing that lies at the heart of shame is this, condemnation, punishment. If shame is the fruit, then condemnation, it's the root. If you can deal with that, then you can get rid of shame. And so what Paul says is this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Paul knows and what he's done for the first part of this book is he's built up this, uh, uh, he's built the, the case that you and I are deserving of condemnation, of punishment for all the things that we've done wrong. And not just being punished, but a punishment of separation. Right at the end of the day, you and I, the thing that makes us human is not just that we want things, but we want the same thing. And one thing that we all want is love and acceptance and approval. And what Paul's saying is this, this shame that I have, it robs me of that. Uh, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago and uh, they had, they did an interview with a woman who made her money illegally. And so they sat and they talked to her and they said, hey, do you feel shame about what you do? And what she said was, no. And then she paused and then she said, well, 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 I only feel shame when I talk about it. I mean, shame is by it. When you're by yourself in isolation, there's a bunch of things that you'll do. But when you're forced to actually talk about what you do and who you are and express that to somebody else of which you long for love and acceptance, then that's when shame starts to come in because you know if I'm fully known, there's no way that I'll be fully loved. Shame comes from the old world that old word that literally means to hide or to cover. So this is what shame does. Shame hides. Shame, when it's felt, there's two resolutions that often come shortly after. The very first one is this. I need to hide who I am. I need to withdraw. I need to pull away. Here's how that plays out in the life of a, a church. 
You come to church, you start off a new year, and you're here, and you say, this is going to be the year that, that I change and I really get involved. Well, then as the year goes on, you do something that's shameful. Or somebody does something to you that's shameful. And in your mind, all that you can think of is all of this shame. And now the church becomes a place where if that stuff comes out, they're not going to accept me. And so what will take place is that a church may look like this at the start of the year. But then as the year goes on, slowly, certain folks can just start to withdraw. Now, there are a bunch of reasons. I'm not saying that if you don't come back next week that I'm going to go and find you and say, what are you ashamed of? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it does play out like that. We've seen that at, at times. Or So shame on one hand may say, I need to withdraw. Or it may say, I just need to change the people that I'm around. I, I need to place myself in a group of folks that won't make me feel ashamed when I tell them all the things that I do. So I either remove myself from a standard that would cause me shame or I change the standard. This is why as a church, when we talk about being a, a, a part of a church and why you constantly hear us talk about things like church membership and attendance and being here week in and week out is that the pastors, the four of us right here, what we do when we, we gather is we look through that list of all 104 people that have said, you can expect me to be here and to be a part of this church. So that as we look through that list and pray through that list, and as we come here week in and week out, and we don't see somebody for a long period of time, we don't make the assumption that they've done something that's shameful, but at least it helps us to be able to start a conversation and find out. Shame dealt with in isolation is suicide. Why would you ever... Put yourself in a situation where when shame finds you, which it will, you could remain aloof and nobody would ask about you. That's what we're trying to do. That's why we constantly make these big pushes. Because shame hides. It's so hard to talk about. If somebody were to come to you right after church and said, hey, Bob, what are you most ashamed of right now? How likely are you to answer that question? How likely are you to answer that question completely? How likely are you to answer that question honestly? You're not very likely because shame hides. And shame dealt with in isolation is suicide, even if it doesn't end there in this life. Where shame is the fruit, condemnation is the root, the fear of being separated, ostracized. So here's what takes place. The Bible, the world that we live in, Satan, everybody's speaking more to condemnation than to shame. Because if you can deal with condemnation, then you can really work through shame. The problem is we live in a world 
where we get conflicting messages about condemnation. Right? So read the first part of this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's what we all want to hear. Because if we got rid of condemnation, then we could get rid of shame. So Satan speaks to this and God does as well. The Bible talks about Satan as the father of lies. And so what takes place is that Satan will say two completely different things to two completely different groups of people. To the non-Christian, to those that would not consider themselves Christian, the message that Satan unequivocally gives is this. There is no condemnation, period. For all of us. It's the same thing that he said from the beginning. You will not surely die. There's no standard. God is love. There is no such thing as hell. Why would God send somebody to hell for eating a piece of fruit off a tree? Or for loving somebody in the way that they want to do it? Or for choosing a completely different standard? Why can't we all just coexist? There's many ways to to God. There is no condemnation for anybody. The problem with you is not you. The problem with you is that church. It's that book. It's this archaic standard that was meant for an ancient culture, and we've progressed past all of this. There is no condemnation. And so what he does is on one hand is he takes a group of folks and he tells them there's no condemnation. You have nothing to worry about. And Satan is a liar. So what he does is he gives folks this false sense of peace. The same way he did with Adam and Eve. But what took place was they took that information that he had. They lived as if there was no condemnation at all for their sin. And then what takes place? Shame still comes in. There's something that God gives us, that God placed inside of them that's still in us. That when God comes down, as he always does in the Bible, to initiate relationship with people, God didn't pull away. Adam and Eve hid because inside they knew that there was something that they did wrong. They knew that there was this standard that they broke. They knew they had this innate sense that there was condemnation. There was supposed to be a penalty for the wrong things that they did. And you may be here right now when you may say, well, I used to feel that at one time. I used to feel really, really bad and really shameful about all of these things, but now I don't feel as bad. And you may view that as you graduating. But the Bible views that as atrophy, being calloused. It's like being in a house with a fire alarm and because of inattention, the battery has died and your house is burning up and you think I'm cool because I don't hear an alarm go off. It's not that you're cool. It's just that continued disobedience to God gives us these calloused hearts where though we should be ashamed, we're not. And we need somebody to come alongside and to say, 
You should be ashamed of yourself to rouse us up and to give us the very thing that God gave us as a gift. Satan will come and say, you will not surely die. There's no condemnation. And he'll secure many people's death and destruction with this false sense of peace. But he's the father of lies, which means this, that if he'll do that to people that shouldn't have peace, then for the Christians, for those of us that should have peace, but feel like we're attacked by a weak conscience, do you know what he'll say to us, to those of us that are in Christ, that have trusted in Christ? There is condemnation for you. There is no protection. And so what he'll do is for those of us that are ravaged by a conscience where we know that we don't perform as God would have us, he'll constantly accuse us of these things and say, look at your performance. Look at what you did wrong. Look look at what you said there. Look at what you missed to where you have a group of people that should have all this confidence because of what God did, finding themselves weighed down by this burden of sin that they can't carry. If Satan will lie and give one group a false sense of peace, he'll give another group that should have peace a false sense of panic. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers who I quote, I think, each week that I'm up here, in his his autobiography, one thing that he said is that when he first became a Christian, when he would read the Bible... Every word of condemnation, he said, it was as if they were written in bold and capital letters. And every promise, it was as if it was written in the tiniest font. And that's what Satan does. He wants those of us that have put our trust in Christ, reminded of the fact that he was the one that paid the price for our sins, to think that this whole thing hangs on the way that I perform. And if you're looking for justification by your performance, you're never going to find it. Yeah, yeah, Romans 3, chapter 19 and 20, it's here on the screen, and it says this, this is the way that God made the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you're looking for justification in God's sight because of how good of a person you are, you're never going to find it. And if you do find it, it's because you're lying to yourself. And so here's where God steps in. God steps in and in his word, he talks about condemnation. But one thing that we find out is this. It's worse than we think. As Paul works through this book in chapters one through three, he builds this whole thing out. Shame comes from the fact that you and I know that we should be condemned. Condemnation comes from the fact that you and I know that we've broken standards. And you say, which ones? All of them. So for the Christian, we've broken God's standards for us. For the non-Christian, for you that would sit here and say, well, I don't ascribe to 
God's standard. What Paul will say is, you've broken your own standards. Who here can say, I've lived up to everything that I've told somebody else that they should or would do? Nobody. So the people who would say, uh, absolute truth, that's uh, bogus. Relative truth, that's what you need to believe. That is somebody that's saying the standard is relative truth, but they're trying to impose their standard on somebody else. They don't live up to their own standard. People that want tolerance or when we uh, 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 long for that, everybody wants tolerance until they find somebody intolerant to their view. Every standard that's created or set up You and I don't live up to those standards. And as a result of that, we have an innate feeling inside of us that we should be condemned. And this is where God steps in and says, wait, wait. The problem is bigger than you think. Because it's not just about your performance. It's about your position. It's about your parents. It's about the nature that's inside of you. So when this first says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? In, and then he says, not a place, but a person. What does that mean? In the Bible, people can be in one of two camps. In Christ or in Adam. And so here's what takes place. The thing that is common about all of us here is that we were born with an incredible amount of dignity created in God's image. But that dignity has been corrupted. If you ever find yourself at a place where you say, I can't explain it. I don't know why I do the things that I do. I don't know why I want so bad to get rid of that shame from that thing that I've done, but I find myself constantly running back to the very thing that caused me shame. If, if you ever find yourself at that place, it's not a mystery. God's word says the reason why things are this way is because all of us are born into this world in Adam. We share in his DNA. There's this corruption where regardless of the good things that's input inside of us, we'll never fulfill our true purpose of displaying a good and perfect and holy God. It's like Bluebell. For those of y'all that know him, from Texas. And one thing, right? When my wife and I first moved out here six years ago, we almost didn't move out here because they didn't sell Bluebell here. Yeah, uh that's true. So what takes place is we lived out here. We've enjoyed it for for some time now. But then last year, what took place was they found listeria in ice cream. In uh, their ice cream. Three people died as a result of it. So what they did was they shut the whole thing down. Why? Was it because the ice cream didn't taste good? Of course not. Was it because there was something wrong with the ingredients that were brought in? No. It was because the factory was corrupted. 
And so anything that's produced or comes out of there, while it may taste good, while it may look good, it can actually cause people to die. So what they do was they shut it down and they say, everything that comes from here is no good. Listen, God condemning sin, God punishing sin is not something that we have to apologize for. It's not something that God does because he's mean. The reason why God condemns sin and punishes sin is because he loves his creation so much. And anything that would cause his creation to be harmed or to die, he's got to shut it down because of his great love. So if we find out that you and I are corrupted and in our mission to lead people to the one God where they won't find that shame, our corruption brings death not just for us, but for them. If you were God, what would you do? If you were God and you had a daughter or a son that was in danger because somebody was coming after them and was going to do them harm, would you just let them go? No, you would act out of the best interest to protect the one that you love. And this is what our God does. This is why condemnation is right and it's true. But as Christians, this is why condemnation is not what we preach. We don't preach a message of condemnation, you're going to go to hell. Because what takes place is this. Any, if a message of condemnation is preached, that doesn't turn people from their sin. It only makes them more hard in their sin. So as I grew up, I had a curfew where I had to get home. And my folks said, if you're one minute late, then you're going to be grounded. So as I'm out and I find out I'm going to be late, and they call me and say, you're late, regardless of what takes place, you're grounded. Am I trying to rush home? No, I ain't trying to rush home. If, if I'm going to get in trouble, then I'm at least going to enjoy it. And when we come and we preach this, this harsh God, this message of condemnation, it only hardens people that are for him that feel like if I can't change and I'm already going to get in trouble, then I'm at least going to enjoy the ride. I'm at least going to roll this thing until the wheels fall. And this is the beauty of what we get here in this text. Is this is not a message of condemnation. This is a message of salvation. And hope. If it's conflicting words about condemnation, God's crystal clear about how bad things are so that He can be crystal clear about how good it is. There is therefore now, presently, at this time. Don't look to your past deeds. It's not about your past deeds, it's about right now. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For all of us? No, for those that are in Christ Jesus. For as many as are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Salvation, it's not about your past performance, but it's about your new position in Jesus. If our problem is one of position, then the solution is not going to be one of how well that we perform, but who are we in? 
And this is what makes the gospel and Jesus so beautiful. Is Jesus lives contrary to Adam. If you take Adam and Jesus and just contrast them, what you'll see is that there is this unique difference. Adam, when he got hit with the shame that he should have, what did he do? He blamed his wife. He, he tried to shift this blame that was rightly his on her. Jesus had no blame. But he took all of our blame and all of our shame and he shouldered it. Adam was born in this lush garden, given all of this dignity. But God in the flesh came and from birth. He was born in a manger. How shameful is that? To tell people where you're born. I was born at Grady. I was born in Houston. Jesus, where were you born? I was born out back in the feeding trough. He was born to a mother that was, that had him because she conceived him by the Holy Spirit of God. So up to John 8, you read, and they take these little jabs at Jesus, subtly calling him a bastard. We don't know your daddy. Shame. Innocent. Not just innocent, but perfect. And he was condemned to death. Not just condemned to, to death. You and I know the shame of being picked last for a team. As Jesus is being tried, they give people a choice of who they're going to set free. Jesus or a murderer. And they resoundingly choose the murderer. Jesus goes to death. Not just any death, but the most humiliating and shameful death. Why? Because he earned it? No. But because his purpose was to come into this world and shoulder all of our blame. So that as he died on the cross, not for the things that he did, but for the things that you did, for the things that I did, as he died on the cross, he sheltered us from God's righteous and just wrath. So to be found in Jesus means that God's wrath came down. The atomic bomb of God's wrath did drop. But Jesus was my shelter. Jesus was the one that could absorb that wrath and set me free. So that you and I can stand back and say this. I am 100% guilty. But I am 100% not condemned. Listen, and it's not a miscarriage of justice. There have been times where people have been 100% guilty and set free. And it was a travesty. 60 years ago, a little boy by the name of Emmett Till was brutally murdered by two men. Those two men were acquitted. Later on, they release a interview 
with a magazine where they said, we did it and we're proud that we are. They were 100% guilty, 100% set free. That is not the gospel. We were 100% guilty. We are 100% free because the wrath of God 100% came down. But somebody else stood in our place. We didn't get over on anybody. God knows. But in Christ Jesus, for those of us that have put our trust in him and turned and repented from our sins, we are fully known but fully loved. Romans 8, folks say this is the crown jewel of the Bible because it starts off and it says this. Look, there is no condemnation. And the chapter ends with, look, there's no separation for all of us that fear that our shame of the things that we've done wrong are going to remove us from God's presence because of what Jesus has done. We are secure. Romans chapter 4, 16, Paul says, the reason why grace the reason why we have salvation by grace is so that God could guarantee that he could show the riches of his kindness towards all of us that miss the mark. That's the beauty of the gospel. This is what makes Jesus so undeniably great. There are no competitors. There's nobody else that deals with sin and shame in this way. At best, what folks can long for is a God that says, that's fine. It's not that big of a deal. You're guilty, but move on. But we don't want that. That's a travesty. We want God to deal with sin, and he has perfectly in Jesus Christ. So now it's not about our performance. It's about our position. Are we in him? That bomb shelter is big enough for all of us. That bomb shelter will not crack under pressure. That is the safest place to be. And the gospel that we preach is that that is available to anybody who feels like I'm dealing with shame and I don't know what to do. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's acknowledging to God that he's right, that I am the type of person that would do this. But saying, God, but I'm also the type of person that you sent your son here to die for, and I want that. And the beauty of all of this is, in being set free from the things that cause us shame, we're given the power not to run back to those things. We're given the strength not to find ourselves entrenched with this feeling of being condemned. Here's practically how it plays out. Uh, probably about uh, 12 years ago, I was a sophomore in college um, in a place where I was leading a Bible study in a men industry um, there. Well, in the midst of all of this time, um, I found myself involved uh, in a relationship that was inappropriate in every way imaginable, just entrenched and steeped in sin and ashamed 
to share all of what was going on in my heart. Pastor Richard and I lived, uh, uh, we lived together at the time, and um, we would host the study at our house. Man, and I was just so ashamed and so convicted that I went up to his room and I said, Richard, for X amount of months, I've been living foul. This is what my life has been like. I'm so ashamed. And so I said, man, I really feel like we need to tell these group of guys tonight. So they were going to come to our house at 7, and most of the time they were late. And so I'm like, all right, we're going to start right at 7, and I'm just going to tell them, and then we're going to move past. Well, that night, everybody got there on time. And all of the folks that, like, didn't come all, uh, all of the time. So it's 30 guys in our house, and we sit there, and it's like, guys, I have something, something to say. And I shared, and I just expounded on just the ways that I lived foul. And I expected to hear words of condemnation. But here's the beauty, that when God sets people free from condemnation and shame, there's something inside of them where they instinctively want to do the same thing. And in that room, I wasn't reminded of how bad I was. I wasn't reminded of how much of a disappointment I was. I was reminded of how loved I was. I was reminded of the truth that God's love for me is not based on the way that I perform. I was reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And it forever changed my life and the way that I respond to people when they share the things that make them so ashamed. Now picture everybody in here that says, I don't don't know what to do with my shame. If you were confident that you could come in here and share that same thing, and you would be reminded, not of your bad works, but of God's great love for you and how Christ has died, knowing full well all of the things that you would do. And what he wants more than anything is to tell you, you are 100% not condemned. Would you want that? If our church is really full of people that believe this truth, then for all of us that say, I don't know what to do with my shame, I can tell you what to do. Stick around. Don't leave. Don't hide. Answer the conversation completely, honestly, and fully. And be surprised at how the God that we serve can really cause this shame that seemed to weigh down on us so hard to vanish. Not because of a resolve that we're going to do better, but because we're reminded that our salvation is about the position that we're in. And if we're in Christ Jesus, we have been sheltered from God's wrath and condemnation and the shame. And we've been given the power 
not to run back to the very things that will cause us that shame. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope of a Christian community that's centered on this message, that people would change and experience no condemnation and no separation. I pray that God would lift the shame from us right now. Find somebody to talk to and make it your aim to remind them not of their bad works, but of God's great work on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, once again, just reflecting on these words, remind us that you are such a great God. This is an offer that we would be fools to pass up on. We are sinners, but make us sensible sinners that run to you for salvation, God. Make us those that give us the courage not to run away, not to hide, but to expose our sin to you because we know that you already see it. We can't hide from you, Father. And your aim and your goal and your hope is not to condemn, but to set us free. We pray that you would do that. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, one of the things we're getting ready to do right now is, Pastor Mo said, um, is get a chance to take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, what, what, what we do is, those of us that are Christians, that have found ourselves in a place where we say, when it comes to being accepted in the sight of God, I found myself in Christ Jesus. I've turned from my sin. I've repented of my sin and I put my trust in him. We get a chance right now to be reminded of the shame that Christ went through so that you and I did, won't have to uh, deal with it. And so um, as our host team comes up, what they're going to do is they're going to pass around um, the elements. And we ask that you would pass those around, hold on to them um, and we're going to sing and be reminded of the fact that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And then I'll come back up and I'll lead us through a time where we take those things together as a family.